Welcome to the Ham and High podcast. In this episode, Sally Patterson speaks to Mandu Reid, leader of the Women's Equality Party and the party's candidate for Mayor of London. Mandu discusses her manifesto as well as the party's role in the current political landscape. Good morning, uh, Mandu Reid. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this morning. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. So before we jump into your manifesto and the elections in front of us, tell us a little bit about how you ended up as leader of the Women's Equality Party and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I wake up in the morning and I ask myself that question um, on a fairly regular basis because I absolutely was not one of those children who growing up had ambitions to be prime minister or um, saw them. I, I just didn't necessarily see myself um, as a politician, even though for the bulk of my professional career, I worked for politicians. And I think that was actually probably a factor in me thinking, I don't really want to be one of those. You know, I, I worked for Boris Johnson. I worked for Ken Livingston. I worked for Sadiq Khan. I worked in um, central government as well. Um, but essentially, I have always been politically interested, politically active. Um, and when I um, hit my um, sort of mid 30s, my feminist consciousness really started to come into being. Um, I, I took a while, I was a late developer when it came to feminism, but I did realize at a certain point, as many women do, that hang on a minute, there's, there's a fight that still needs to be fought here. You know, we're a long way off um, the line we're sold. And, and what that did was that got me interested in, in political activism. I joined the Labour Party locally after the 2010 elections and I tried to get involved, but I was frustrated because there was never, in my view, a sufficient enough focus on equality between men and women. It was always relegated. There was always a reason why other issues were more pertinent or more important. And so um, after not very long, I sort of abandoned that path and um, decided I don't want to be a member of a political party and I'll vote, of course, but I don't want to be involved. Then the Women's Equality Party came along and I thought that sounds interesting, but I stood back, you know. Um, but when I delved into the policies that the party has, I realized, hang on a minute, this is something that actually is more than just a little bit interesting. And it was our equal parenting and caregiving policies that really resonated for me, uh, simply because I believe if those policies were implemented, it would, and that is shared parental leave that's properly shared between both partners, free universal childcare from the end of parental leave to age five, which by the way, may sound expensive, but pays for itself within a few years of implementing it because you'll have more women in the workforce paying their taxes, not claiming benefits, supporting the prosperity of the economy, as well as a better balance between men and women. And so I just was propelled because of that to get more involved. And it was a really rapid journey because I started stood as a candidate a couple of times. I became a national party spokesperson for equal parenting and caregiving, which is a bit weird because I actually don't have children. And there's, there's a story behind that, which I can, I can take you through if you like. Um, but our previous party leader stood down, which took a few people by surprise. And there was um, a, a, an opening and I was surprised to find that I was being lobbied to put myself forward. And so that's what I did. Um, 
with a lot of trepidation. I, I, I was kind of reluctant in part because I was fearful of being a woman in politics, a black woman in politics, but I decided to give it a shot because I felt that I had something to contribute. And, you know, here I am two years later, I'm standing for, for the mayor of London and just trying to make the arguments that often get overlooked so that London's four and a half million women and girls get heard in this election. And that's something that doesn't happen nearly enough. And as you've actually briefly mentioned yourself, mm. in the past, the Women's Equality Party has been criticised for being perhaps made up of disproportionately made up of, of white middle class women yeah. and really only representing their views. Is there any truth in that? I think, you know, any movement starts where it starts. You know, the people who have the means, the connections, potentially even the resources to start something like this let's face it, they're more likely to come from a certain demographic. And that is what happened with the Women's Equality Party. And I don't think that's a bad thing in and of itself, but I, I, I actually am really proud of the evolution we've been on. We're only six years old. I am the first person of color ever to lead a national political party. Um, you know, the Labour Party just about managed it with their, their new leader in Scotland this year. It took them a long time. They've never had a woman in charge, you know. So I think our rate of adaptation, our rate of, of evolving quickly and making ourselves relevant to the broadest possible spectrum of women is something that people should really reflect on when they want to uh, examine us as a movement. And, and we have, I have um, three deputy leaders uh, who um, support me in my work. One of them is from a working class background. She left school at age 11. One is a black woman, uh, you know, child of Windrush uh, uh, generation immigrants. Um, the other one is a disabled uh, doctor. So we have the most diverse leadership team in British politics, although I confess our male representation is, is running a little bit slim in our party. And, and uh, uh, if, if you want to point at something that maybe, you know, uh, could, be, could be something we, we work on in future, whatever, that's an area. But when it comes down to it, it's an oversimplification, I think, to just zoom in on um, the genesis of the party. Look at the journey we've been on in a really, really short time. We got a vibrant set of caucuses in the party groups where um, women of color come together, disabled women of color come together, LGBTQI people come together, people who are campaigning for other particular issues. And I'm just super proud of that. Yeah. And I really actually think that that is very reflective in your manifesto. Going mm. through your manifesto, I think, what was quite interesting for me was there are the key issues that I think most candidates are running on, right? There's uh, transport, there's crime, there's policing, there's housing. But the Women's Equality Party have put a, a different spin on them. Um, and I think, uh, so looking, for example, at, at um, you said you want to make a care revolution from City Hall. Yeah. Talk yeah. to us a little bit about that and and about the the work of unpaid women as well, unpaid carers over the past over the past year. Yeah, um, you know, if anything, this last year, um, of course, it's been horrendous, but it has really revealed the extent to which our society is propped up by some of the lowest paid workers, be they childcare workers or social care workers or healthcare professionals. Um, as well as unpaid care work, which we all know um, is disproportionately carried out by women. I mean, there is no way 
our society would have kept functioning um, through the catastrophe of last year if um, any of those categories of workers, disproportionately women, um, you know, uh, withdrew their labor for even a day. The whole thing would have ground to a halt, okay? And so I believe that what we have to do now is move forward and design our recovery in a way that actually recognizes that contribution. Because you can't, in my view, really um, rebuild a city like London. People talk about building back better, but that's not enough if it's just better for some. You've got to build back equal. And to do that, you have to acknowledge the gendered impact of the crisis and have solutions and responses that um, acknowledge those gendered impacts. So let's compare with one of the other campaigns. Um, you know, the, the incumbent mayor, Sadiq Khan, his big mantra is jobs, jobs, jobs. I think that's perfectly sensible as a starting point, but let's unpick that a little bit, right? Data is already showing us that 60% um, uh, of COVID-related job losses in London um, will fall on women's shoulders, yeah? And one of the main reasons for that is lack of childcare provision in our city. And so in my view, you can't actually save jobs and get London back on its feet if you don't invest in the childcare provision that will allow working mothers, single mothers, uh, single parents, 90% of those are women to get back into the workforce. Um, and, and so what we're trying to say is um, you've got to break the molds of the past whereby recovery was always about, let's invest in construction. Uh, let's put a hard hat on and do a photo shoot at a, at a building site. And that's how we're gonna signal that our city is bouncing back. I'm like, no, we've learned from this year how much our city depends on social infrastructure. Let's invest in that too, so that we can actually have a recovery that benefits women, men, and therefore makes the city as a whole more prosperous. And on that point and talking about, you know, these yeah. sort of photo ops with hard hats, you do talk about housing in the manifesto, but what you yeah. say is that you say new housing must be designed and built to work for women, families, older people, disabled people. What does that look like? Well, I mean, there's just an, have you heard of Aspern in Vienna? It's an extraordinary place. It's a district of Vienna. Um, and it was designed by female architects, female urban planners who were using gender mainstream as their methodology for determining how to develop that part of the city, right? And it was, this is, this is a couple of decades ago. It now has um, one of the highest qualities of living, living of any urban area in the entire world, not just for women, for everyone who lives there. Because what they did as their starting point is they made sure they designed pavements and building allocations in a way that acknowledged, you know, that people might have pushchairs that they need to push up and down there. They um, made sure that the housing units, you know, a whole block, let's say it was going to house 50 families, right? Is there, do we need to make sure that there's a childcare provision within, you know, um, a quarter of a mile of this vicinity? Let's factor that into the blueprint of, um, of how the building um, and the, 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 the development as a whole was, was put together. They considered movement of disabled people as well through, through those um, locations, street lighting, every facet you can think of was considered through the lens of what it's like to be a woman living in that area, in that place, what it's like to be a disabled person and others, rather than the approach we've traditionally seen to urban and transport planning, 
uh, from the dawn of time, which is a one size fits men approach. And so I'm proposing that we create something called a mayoral development corporation, right? Which is something the mayor has the power to do. We have one at the Olympic Park and we have one at Old Oak Common linked to the sort of crossrail development. And I want us to trial in our city gender mainstreaming approach to a big development. And let's learn lessons from that. And let's use what we learn from that to inform how urban development in this city will go forward for decades to come. And it isn't just about making life better for women because you make life better for women and that has a knock-on effect for everyone in society as a whole. And I wanna see our mayoralty using the full force of that office, being imaginative and, and, and that's not what happens with um, mayors of London. Mayor, the mayor of London is often a stepping stone to um, higher political ambitions. And so their tendency, in my experience, I've worked for all three previous mayors. I've, I've worked at City Hall longer than anybody else standing for uh, election this time round. What I've seen is that mayors typically play it safe. And that does a disservice to Londoners. And we don't need that in this city, especially on the back of a crisis. So we've got loads of innovative ideas that if you had a mayor with a political courage, you could really do some stuff that, that shored up the destiny of our city in ways that make it a place where everybody, men and women can thrive and fulfill their potential, where everybody, men and women can feel safe and free. Tell us a little bit about what you do at City Hall, just because I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily know that you've been kind of lurking there for a while now. I don't work there anymore. I I am um, I used to work there um, uh, in the sort of final years of Ken Livingstone's term as Mayor of London, or through Boris's term, and for about three and a half years of Sadiq's term in office. And in that twelve-year period, I did a lot of jobs. I was. Um, I spent four years that were really intense doing um, operational planning for the Olympic Games. And that was so interesting because it, in a way, equipped me for this campaigning that I'm doing now because that had a transport dimension to it, a security dimension to it, a sort of um, urban physical realm dimension to it. And, and, and so it kind of gave me a good grounding in all of the potential the office of the mayor has, um, as well as, uh, I guess, a realism about some of the things that aren't necessarily possible. Um, I also was a commissioner, I was responsible for a multi-million pound program to invest in um, grassroots community sports. So the development of facilities, training up people to be coaches, this is part of the Olympic legacy and um, programs to give people who are typically disadvantaged opportunities to get fit, stay active, et cetera, et cetera. I also did a little bit on youth crime, a little bit on tree planting, and um, I think there was one other area. Gosh, what did I do at the very, very, very beginning? Oh, plenty of internal stuff about um, improving project and risk management within City Hall. It sounds like you've got a pretty good grasp, at least, of, of how it yeah. works as an organization, which Absolutely. is uh, definitely an advantage. Um, low traffic neighborhoods mm. are a topic which seem to massively kind of divide candidates and, and probably Londoners as well. And some candidates are running on a platform of scrapping LTNs altogether. What can you understand why why they're taking such a hard line on them? Yeah, I think it depends on who you've been listening to, right? And it depends on which constituency of Londoners you were trying to seduce to vote for you at the ballot box. And my problem with this is 
these low traffic neighborhoods were implemented pretty rapidly um, through uh, you know, last year where circumstances in the city change. And I think it's really good to be experimental, to try different things. But what bothers me is a knee jerk reaction based on complaints or issues people flag up that, um, and then if they're a group that has a loud voice that has a disproportionate you know, uh, Im implications for the, the decision-making. So what I believe needs to happen is we need to do something um, that is akin to a, an equality impact assessment, but it should also be an opportunity impact assessment of how these um, low traffic neighborhood provisions have been implemented. I don't think we should assume that in every place implementing them is a disaster for all motorists or a disaster for women's safety. It might actually work beautifully in my area, I'm in Lewisham, and um, not be a very good thing at all where you are in Islington. And so what we need to do is now everyone needs to pipe down, take a step back. We need to uh, have an independent, um, it, it would take, I don't know, six weeks, eight weeks to do this, evaluation of the impact these measures have had on different people's lives. Let's remember women and, and treat them as a specific group who have specific concerns. Let's remember disabled people. Let's think about local businesses and then make a judgment. I think what people are doing is, I mean, we're in an election, so it's inevitable. People are jumping on the passion and emotion that people feel in relation to this and using it as sort of jet fuel for their campaigns. I refuse to do that because the work hasn't been done to evaluate are these a net good or a net bad thing? And it might be, as I say, they're net good in Islington and net bad in Lewisham. And so we have to um, make decisions for our city that are based on a true understanding of what we lose and what we gain. And that work's just not been done. And I'm not gonna be a politician that tries to impress the motorists or tries to pander to another group who uh, are flagging their concerns because I want us to be sober and objective about it. election is coming you know just months after Sarah Everard's tragic murder and the mm. following protests that that sparked how do you plan to ensure that Londoners and especially women Londoners are safe at night and around our city I mean Sarah Everard's really tragic murder I'm still processing it but it is she was the 119th woman murdered by a man at the time she was killed this year. Um, this issue of male violence against women and girls is a huge issue. And we as a party have always known it's an issue and it didn't take a high profile case like Sarah's for us to see and treat this as a political priority. I wanna say, I'm gonna say this straight up now, you saw politicians lining up to say, oh my God, this is tragic. This has got to stop. I'm going to do everything in my power to stop it. This week, we had the um, hustings for ending violence against women and girls organized by um, the sector. I was the only mayoral candidate who showed up. The rest sent proxies, people who weren't really experts in this issue. And that for me speaks volumes. The news cycle has moved on. And now um, our politicians have suddenly uh, also moved on from the importance of this issue. A few things need to be done. We need to recognize the extent of it. And we need to face up to the fact that over the last five years, while the, this mayor has been in office, it's gotten worse. Sexual assault on the London underground alone is up by 42 percent. 
every year, 8,000 reported rapes take uh, place in our city and the number goes up year on year. Now, you know that rape is an underreported crime, so that's just the tip of the iceberg. Domestic abuse has gone through the roof and it's not just because of COVID, that was happening incrementally year on year over the last five years that this mayor was in charge. So let's not pretend that um, we have a handle on this issue and we're doing the right things to address it. So you've got to acknowledge the problem for a start. Um, you've got to look at the way the police behave. And in my view, we have to address institutional misogyny and sexism in the police force. I mean, are you aware that over the last six years, 600 um, allegations of sexual misconduct have been made um, against metropolitan police officers? Um, and, and staff of the Metropolitan Police Service, 600, a fifth of those were upheld. Can you imagine, Sally, another employer where you'd have that rate and level of complaints being made and we just shrug our shoulders and pretend it doesn't matter? And that is, an, that is a service that is there to serve and protect. So we need a rapid review of misogyny and sexism in the police force. And we need to address the way the police handle these things because rape has been going up but charge rates, that's the police actually charging um, people who've been accused of sexual assault are a seventh of what they were when this mayor came to office. The mayor is the police and crime commissioner. This is on the mayor. They are the responsible politician for these issues. And so I would set targets around the key, the key indicators that tell us how this problem is, is panning out. They would be reviewed quarterly. We'd create a specialist police squad that isn't just about policing. It's, it's designed and developed um, in concert with the women's sector. And we'd, have, we'd also recognize that policing isn't the only factor here. We need to fund specialist services, make sure that no woman is turned away from a refuge if she's fleeing violence. Every year, 2,000 women are. Um, and that is not good enough in our city in 2021. And we also need to invest in prevention. And what I mean by that is, you know, um, public awareness type campaigns that you really invest in and really stick to. Think about maybe in the 60s and 70s, it's quite normal, right? To have a couple of pints, jump in your car and drive home. People don't do that anymore. And they don't do it because a decision was made centrally to campaign to make it socially unacceptable for that pattern of behavior. And what we have is this thing of, we know it's not all men who are doing these things, but what we don't see enough of is the men expressing their disapproval sufficiently to prevent those who do feel inclined to do these things. You gotta make it socially unacceptable. And I think that takes um, decades of public awareness style, public health style campaigning to, to make that happen. You need to put energy into what's going on in educational establishments, primary school all the way up to university. The mayor has something called the Healthy Schools Program in London. And I would add um, all sorts of content around consent, around what harassment is, around respect, etc., to help incubate in our kids and our teenagers and our young adults a real understanding of what the boundaries are and what they should be and, and really commit to that. And this, maybe you're thinking this sounds expensive. Well, yeah, you can't do this stuff on the cheap. And, and that's why I would invest the 42 million pounds a year that we're going to um, raise by putting council tax up, not on more bobbies on the beat, but on this holistic program. Because more bobbies on the beat is not gonna do anything for people who are victims of domestic abuse in their home. It's not going to do anything for the majority of women who are raped in the city. They're not raped on the street corner. 
And so what you need to do is look at policing in a way that matches the patterns of what's going on. And, you know, I spoke about political courage and how mayors, uh, mayors of London, unfortunately, seem to be overcautious because I think they typically have political ambitions. This would take courage to say, no more bobbies on the beat isn't the solution. No way. You got to do a whole load of other holistic stuff. And the last thing to knit all that together is I will create a new deputy mayor responsible for ending violence against women and girls. Because at the moment, it sits with Sophie Linden, who's the deputy mayor for policing and crime. I've already explained this isn't only about policing. Policing is just a part of the equation. So I would create a deputy mayor portfolio, somebody who I as mayor would hold to account. Every quarter, I'm gonna know what's happened with rape stats, what's happened with charging for sexual assault. Why is it going in the wrong direction? What's our action plan to fix it? And you know, I think over the three years that this mayor has an office, if you have that kind of ruthless focus, you can start to make a change that London's four and a half million women and girls would thank you profusely for. I think one of the things that it sounds like you're talking about and one of the things that the Women's Equality Party, I, I guess, stand for are holding the mayor or you know other political leaders to account on these yeah. issues, right? Yeah. Now, there are people who say, well, in that case, wouldn't the Women's Equality Party be stronger, more useful as a lobby group mm. and not run their own candidates and instead try and get these policies into mainstream parties? So the way we um, get these policies into mainstream parties is by standing for election. And, and, and I mean, take a look at this, you know, um, as I've already said, I'm the only mayoral candidate who showed up to the hustings for um, the London, uh, held by the London women's sector about ending violence against women and girls. And the other example I give is, you know, we're a young party, we, we got our first elected official um, up in what we now call the Feminist Republic of Congleton um, in Cheshire. Um, and in 18 months, what she has been able to do is absolutely extraordinary. Um, one individual round the table in that, local, in that local council has brought in an enormous suite of measures. We now have an equality strategy. So every decision that gets made has to go through a certain process that considers the equality ramifications of it. Um, she's got streets named after women. They are now a white ribbon accredited town, which white ribbon is the um, men against violence against women and girls initiative. She has got a childcare strategy and more funding for childcare provision implemented. One woman round the table with politicians, including women from other parties who for the whole time that they've served on that council haven't brought even a fraction of those issues in. And so with the London elections, let's face it, I'm an outside bet to be the next mayor of London. I think, um, I think it would be really quite a surprise um, if, if uh, that result came to fruition. But we are campaigning also for the London Assembly because having a women's equality party rep is different from having a woman from the Labour Party or from the Lib Dems on the London Assembly. And I'll tell you why. Representation is good, but you need representation and a mandate to fights for very specific issues. I told you I used to be a member of the Labour Party and I left because I felt it was too, um, they weren't ambitious enough about equality between men and women. Our candidate around the table is gonna be really uncompromising and totally focused and will never, ever, ever skirt an opportunity to champion what's going on for London's four and a half million women and girls. She will never miss an opportunity to highlight how women are disproportionately affected by 
um, the impact of COVID or, um, or issues that might be a bit politically challenging around let's reorient our policing to tackle violence against women and girls, which is one of the most prevalent crimes in our city, even though it doesn't get nearly as much airtime as something like knife crime. And so our people are, nev are never ever going to, um, you know, dodge the bullet when it comes to standing up for women. And that's what I mean. We, we bring something really, really unique. What I hope though, is we get to the point where, you know, I can retire and go and lie on a beach in Barbados because all the other political parties are much more ambitious about equality between men and women. But let me tell you something, we're a long way off that now. They, most of the mainstream political parties won't even address sexual harassment within their own party. They would rather close ranks to protect men who are accused of these crimes, freeze out the women who make those complaints. And until they up their game, we are very much needed. But if the other parties can do right by women, then we can back off and step back. But until they do that, um, we ain't going anywhere. Mandu, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast and best of luck over the next couple of weeks. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much to Mandu for speaking to us. If you enjoyed the podcast, hit subscribe and leave a nice review and rating. We'll be back soon.